0: Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm and keskin a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijang, a culture writer and critic, and this week we're discussing the new Gossip
1: Girl and Pursuit of Love, both series in which uh, adults play teens, maybe kind of <laughs> unconvincingly, but there you go. Yeah. Hollywood.
0: Hollywood, baby. <laughs> and also just like complicated female relationships you know uh, yes as well. yes you, can, like, yeah, just, you <laughs> can say that um what have you been up to this week how's your week been i think it's been very eventful for you right a little bit
1: i i guess mostly having to do with the website i work for gawker or the the new the new gawker which officially kind of low-key relaunched this past week
0: yeah um, it looks
1: great Thank you. Interesting design, which a lot of people are commenting on, uh in good and bad ways. <laughs> um, that's how you know it's great. Yeah, it's it's starting the buzz. But yeah, it was uh somewhat marred by like some technical issues in terms of like link sharing and stuff, but I as I mentioned to you, Pellen, that may be a good thing for my nerves personally, because yeah, it meant like nobody could really perceive or share our work that much which means like it helped some of the reaction like stay I guess somewhat tempered I, I suppose or at least I didn't have to see anything
0: yeah and it also just took the pressure off of like the big launch so- I'm really excited <laughs> I-, I I told you this but I read everything that you wrote oh my god because I'm trying to get my god girl- them clicks you know Thank you. Um, Thank you. But you're a very good writer. I'm also astounded by how much you have written, even pre-launch. Which oh is yeah, two months nuts. just writing fake blogs <laughs> every day. <laughs> They're all so good though, and I'm excited to to. I know that you're nervous about like being perceived in general, mm-hmm. but you gotta get you gotta get with it, babe. You're, you're gonna you're like basically a cool media girl now. I so I. Soundly reject that, but but thank you for the the confidence. Um, Gia Tolentino, what's your neck, babes?
1: (laughs) All right, Gia, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. Um, (laughs) But yeah, if if you as our our listener, if you would like to check out a site that is somewhat rude, feel free to go to Gawker.com. And we love a sassy sight <laughs> maybe maybe you'll like it maybe you won't but anyway it's there um and what about you Pellen? how has your week been uh my week's been all right i've been
0: getting into the olympics me too surprisingly. i know that like last yeah surprisingly uh, last week we were like who's watching it does anyone know it exists and like and then I'm we started watching <laughs> yeah i've definitely been spending like the last hour of my tv watching before i go to bed which catching uh, up? which sport are you you into well i started with skateboarding women's skateboarding Ooh, okay. street street skateboarding and that was the one famously where uh just a bunch of teens won all the medals <laughs> like i love 13 year olds from japan and then the 14 year old from brazil incredible who, who won the silver been watching a lot of swimming because my husband used to be on the swim team oh. and i find the format of that sport very pleasing mm-hmm. to the eye and then also like doing a little bit of volleyball, doing a little bit of badminton,
1: oh, a bit of ping pong, so a little, a little bit of everything, like a dabbling everything.
0: in there. Nice. Yeah. What about you? What have you been watching?
1: I've been watching pretty much just volleyball, mostly men's, some women's, and then some of the uh, women's beach volleyball. But I think bread and butter, just like the U.S. men's mm-hmm. volleyball team. My family has been like a volleyball family for a long time. Oh, for real? Yeah, and my, my parents played in school. Like, oh, my wow. brother and I played a little bit, like, when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Not to the level where I was, like, on any sort of team, but just, like, a family activity. Um yeah. So, yeah, into volleyball. And I forgot, like, how easy it is to get, like, sucked up into the excitement of just, like, watching... Yeah, gay, like sports like this. Like this must yeah. be how people like sports fans feel all the
0: time, which is an amazing high. It's very exciting. It is very. I mean, it's also very stressful too. If but, you're yes. super invested. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I think my the funniest observation. This is the first Olympics that I'm watching in America, oh. like with American commentators. Oh. So this has been really interesting to me to observe because it's like the level of confidence that you guys have in general for your country is mad <laughs> like I mean don't get me wrong like when when I was watching in the UK definitely like they rep the set they're trying to like root for the British team and everything but like the American person that is competing is like dead last or close to last and there's no way of that person catching up and then commentators are like oh I don't know if they're gonna get gold and I'm just like are you fucking serious <laughs> Of course they're not going to get cold. They're not even going to make it through to the second round. What are you talking about? It's just it, it, fascinating. Anyway, uh, that's enough Olympics. What have you been watching, Jenny? What, what's what been on your mind this week? Uh, so I've been watching Gossip Girl on HBO Max. And
1: this is, of course, the new Gossip Girl. Um, the sequel, or revival, um, to the iconic 2007 series which is based on the novels by Cecily von Ziegsar. Um, so this version, uh, for those who aren't aware, although I'm sure plenty of you have been keeping up with this, it's developed by showrunner Joshua Safran, who was a writer and producer on the original Gossip Girl. And it takes place about nine years after the first series, still focusing on the children of the wealthy and the elite at the fictional Upper East Side private school Constance Billard. I'll give you a little bit more of a synopsis before we get into it, just so we're all on the same page. In this one, again, there's like an ensemble cast, a whole group of people to keep your eye on. The inciting incident is the arrival of this newcomer, Zoya, who is a middle-class freshman from Buffalo, and also the younger half-sister of Queen Bee, Julian, an influencer model. And then there's also Julian's best friend, Audrey, Audrey's boyfriend, Aki, um, the Chuck Bass of the group, Max, who is by and loves it. Um, there's Julian's two Mean Girl deputies, Luna and Monet. And then there are a group of teachers led by the English teacher, Kate, who are, we find out very early, they are running this revival of the Gossip Girl account. So there's a whole cast of characters, a whole cast of a lot of newcomers in terms of, you know, actors. And then there are some familiar names. But yeah, all this stuff is sort of the basic premise of this new version of Gossip Girl. And we decided to talk about it this week. Um, We were always going to talk about it, but it felt like a good week to do it. It's Our conversation is going to cover the first four episodes, which is also about the number of episodes that other critics' reviews cover. They had access to the first four episodes before uh, the official premiere as well. So all that is the lead up to my main question for you, Pellin, so far to start off with, which is what do you
0: think? Well, I've hated it from the beginning. So.
1: <laughs> Short and sweet, I- and simple. <laughs> there you go.
0: It's it, I think part of the reason why we were waiting um to talk about it is cuz we were like it has to get better, right? It ha- it has to. Like there has to be a point where it takes off the training wheels of the first two episodes because most tv shows like the first two episodes are a little bit shaky and then they finally you really get a feel for the strength of the writer's room by episode three and uh we have measured it and we weighed it and we are tired of it now (laughs) so i personally um it's become a real hate watch for me Mm -hmm. um how about you? What, what, what's what been going on in your mind? I know we've texted briefly about it, so it, it's I already <laughs> kind of know how you feel, but could you enlighten our listeners? Yes. Um
1: I was also... I had, like, some hopes for it at the beginning, or at least I was curious. I knew that critics, uh, majority of them, were kind of panning it, but I think something about episode four and just, like, this whole lead-up through episode four, it just... It cemented it in my mind. I was like... This show is so ridiculous and not in a particularly fun way. Especially keep in mind, Saffron, he said in interviews that he wanted to make this a comedy. He's, he's calling this a comedy in his mind, which I guess in, if you apply some very specific definition of a, of a comedy, maybe, maybe a comedy because it makes people laugh from how ridiculous it is. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I think Uh, it is also going to become somewhat of a hate, or at least strongly dislike, slash like, what the fuck, watch for me.
0: So here's the thing about that. A part of me feels like he's just tidying up after himself. (laughs) Probably, maybe. Um, But I do believe that it is camp and ridiculous. I think think it's not- I'm not doubting that. Yeah. I'm not doubting that it's like, you know- but at the same time, like, there are shows that know how to make fun of themselves or itself, rather. Yeah. Um, and they do a much better job of yes, that. Yes. Yes.
1: I think there are maybe a couple elements that I would consider camp. And the thing about the original Gossip Girls that so much of that was camp. Um, yeah. but yeah. by and large, I find this show to be too self conscious and totally. a little bit self serious, except yeah. for like the certain elements that are a little bit more self aware and campy. And it's trying too hard, I think, most of all, to make the viewers still like these characters, mm-hmm. which I think is dragging it down a lot and killing it, yeah. and forcing these very uneven characterizations and the different plot points that get yeah. moved past at like lightning speed. Like there, there's conflict, and then they get made up very,
0: very quickly, and then be back into conflict, and then I don't know. Do you you remember when the trailer came out, right? Yes. I think Safran said that it, there wasn't going to be any slut shaming. It's going to be like the most inclusive Gossip Girl. Yeah, yet. diversity. Yeah, and then there was a backlash against that because everybody was like, "All right, we're not watching these people because they're all nice, kind, and oh, uh, you know, Gossip Girl and that world. It's not a safe space. That's why we watch it because it's like astoundingly bad." Mm-hmm. And then the trailer was just like, just the whole like elitism was like really, really pushed. Mm. So that's why I'm unconvinced that this show the creator and its writers have a clear sense of what it is that they're trying to do mm mm-hmm. because it just kind of feels like everything is a response to like very whatever the yeah yeah to like whatever people are saying that is tough true. man it's a tough place to be i, yeah, I don't know it's I it's always tough when you revive something you know
1: yeah and i think this comes with the baggage of like right now where we are at this moment in culture. This like hyper awareness of like privilege both in within the show itself and like surrounding the show, like the the context in which the show exists. It kind of has like cast a shadow over the entire premise itself. Um, I'm not really sure what else there is to do really. And, but at the same time, you know, you know, they, are really promoting this element of diversity and inclusion like they have black people which is something got the original gossip girl did not really have at all they have yeah. different races they have uh trans characters one of the mean mean girls played by a trans actress they have different sexualities but still you know despite all of this kind of surface level like window dressing there is still very little so far on what those different experiences actually mean like what does it mean to be a black girl or a half black girl who is like the queen bee of this school and like her her black sister coming along like they basically don't they have a few throwaway lines one way or another but they really don't do anything to address like what it actually means to be these different things that they're you know the show claims to be so proud of um so again this is you know I'm not going to talk about the, the representation combo all over again, but again, this is like, this is what you get when you, you really, you're just like pushing representation for whatever's sake.
0: Yeah. And like, without understanding the context of where you're placing that representation. Right. Um, I, I mean, so my, my biggest annoyance is not just, you know, I don't care so much about that. It's what these characters talk about and yeah. the way that they frame all the little like woke touchstones to kind of signify that they are smart and they think about, you know, equity and racism in the world. And like, come yeah. on, man. Come on, man. Yeah.
1: Like, and uh... I wanted to ask you about what you think about the characters because one big point pulling it down for me is again, like the characters, um, how they're, how they've been written so far, you know, fairly flat. I don't really understand yeah. the relationships with each other or what binds them as a group and yeah. also the performances.
0: So w- what do oh you think God. of the the characters and the their performances? So none of it feels accurate. Mm-hmm. Um I don't understand why Julian as the queen bee and the social media influencer. Anybody that knows anything about social media influencers knows that especially someone as rich or as supposedly successful as Julian has a team of people that manage her presence, not her two fucking friends from Constance Billard. You know? (laughs) Like, it's this weird, like, stepsister situation with them, and I don't understand it. I don't understand why she's still friends with them after episode four. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't, again, like you mentioned, they're trying to make her likable, and I don't understand that. I don't understand Zoya. Um, Mm. I don't understand their relationship. And... I get that it, I get that like what's trying to be communicated to us is that it's complicated but in the complication it feels very like I'm getting whiplash. Yes, yes, very much so. And then with the men, there's obviously homages to other uh characters from like the pre like Gossip Girl 1.0. Mm-hmm.
1: Um
0: an iteration of Chuck Bass is now basically played by the character Max, who's played by Thomas Doherty. I personally think he has understood the assignment. He's the only person that seems to have understood the assignment. I would agree
1: with that. I think he is, like, by far the best of this, the main cast, but he had some crocodile tears in episode four that. Oh, uh, yes. I was like, oh my God, this is. Yeah. No, thank you for this. But yeah, he is, like, by and large, um,
0: the stronger one out of the, the high schoolers. Uh, my personal deep dislike Mm -hmm. is, um, Audrey, played by Emily Allen-Lind, um, and her boyfriend Aki, played by Evan Mock, the skateboarder, who I didn't know was famous and cool before I watched this. Mm-hmm. And and also, unfortunately, Tabby Gevinson, oh my who God. plays the teacher. Yes. She's trying her best. I think she is actually, compared to you know this is her first like proper acting role yeah um, off of you know off stage um, I love Tavi but something I love Tavi this. and I, I think this is good I think she also is overacting which is yes. you know she just needs to pull it back a little bit but Evan Mock <laughs> fuck me Wow. It has been a minute since I've seen someone act so badly on screen. I mean, the thing about Evan Mock is,
1: yeah, he's a skateboarder. He's a model. He is not an actor at all. This is his first role. I, I think it, the the story is that the showrunner basically had to beg him for a year to join this cast because he created the character of Aki for Evan Mock. And at, at a
0: certain point, it's just like... Should have let it go, Max Yeah, should
1: have let it go. He didn't want to do it clearly like for a long time until you it's also it's also not hard
0: to find like a hot asian kid no it's not (laughs) it's really not and what's funny about it is like speaking of like trying to tidy up after yourself i think saffron was like oh yeah aki was meant to be really shy yeah and it's like he said he's supposed to be acting this way (laughs) no 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 uh your your kid can't act I will give a shout out to Luke Kirby, who plays Julian's dad. I have no idea why he's doing this. He's such a good actor. If you have watched Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you will know that he's oh in that. shit, he's, he's amazing. Lenny. He's Lenny. Yeah, I, Lenny didn't, Bruce. I didn't even realize this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, I mean, he looks ridiculous in the fucking like trilby get up and the cardigan get up, which uh-huh. is you know it's accurate costume design from the costume designer. So it's no shade to you. It's just that. I just, you know, I think Luke Kirby should always be in a tux. Like, that's kind of how I feel about that.
1: So, like, a lot of what we're talking about, and I think what other people are talking about, is sort of, like, this comparison to Gossip Girl 1.0. So I have a question for you, which is, like, was the original Gossip Girl actually so much better than this? Or is it just, like, the nostalgia, like, rose-tinted goggles making it seem like it was? Because at this point, Mm. I don't even quite remember... It has been a long time since I watched any of the original Gossip Girl. And in my mind, it was trashy, but also entertaining. But was it like actually much better than this current iteration?
0: No, I think it sucked, too. Like, I, I remember watching it back when it was out, and I just remember thinking, like, because I dropped off, like, I think after, like, season three or something, I, like, dropped off of it. Yeah, I didn't. Because I, I couldn't it stand it anymore. Yeah. Like, and that was, like, before I even could understand what made a good show or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think it's nostalgia. I also think that what made it interesting is kind of similar to what makes Succession interesting, in that these people are, like, aliens from a different world i don't i can't relate to them i don't know it, it that other like was its strength and i think that's the difference between then and now is that it's really trying to be relatable or it's really trying to be like interesting or cultured mm-hmm. especially with like the reference drops that are being made by different characters and it doesn't need yeah. to do that it does it really can just like you know like a pig and shit roll around in its privilege because that's what makes it otherworldly and this is why we want to see these messy people get into this mess.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think, like, is there any way that a Gossip Girl 2.0 could have succeeded in this current moment in culture? No. And, like, no. what would that take? And, yeah, mm-hmm. I I thought, basically, the answer is probably no because, yeah, we're in this different point where these questions of privilege, uh, quote-unquote cancel culture, class awareness, all of these make it very difficult for any venture that's sort of attempting to walk this fine line or thread the needle here in this way. And I think you're right. Like uh, succession is a good thing to compare it to because they're both depictions about the hyper wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, But succession, yeah, it doesn't hold back. It is fully where, what it is, what it's doing. It's, it's sharpness. It's like the corners that cut in this satirical sort of look at this 1%. Uh, It's self-aware, but it, It, like, fully leans into it versus this, which is also self-aware, but in this, like, self-conscious and timid way. And so, in trying to avoid glamorizing XYZ, it just falls apart. So, I mean, maybe, it was probably doomed to begin with, this show, like, this attempt. So, I don't really know. Maybe the correct answer would be to just, like, have no expectations for this. But somehow, you know,
0: collectively, it seems like we we wanted better in some way. Uh Well, here's the thing. on us. It is on us, definitely. And I think I've got to blame our generation. Mm-hmm. We're, the, we're the first generation that has seen what the... Like, we grew up, our, our young childhood was pre-internet. And then we kind of experienced our young childhood into our teens with the internet. Yeah. So we've been able to, like, crystallize our nostalgia from a certain point onwards. Yeah. And I think that... I mean, it's great because we've seen the before and after, but the downside is, is how we approach nostalgia now. So it kind of feels a little bit like th- this reboot renaissance that has been happening. Mm-hmm. We're basically to blame for that. And I resent it. I resent that like we can't just let something go or can't just like understand that something was good for what it was at the time that it came out. And then to, to redo it or reboot it will only kind of take away from the original thing cause, like that's the thing about like art in general like it comes out at a time where it's contextual to what it's needed you know mm-hmm. there were like when gossip girl first came out like there were a bunch of teen dramas that were had it was like the 90210 mm-hmm. had been re- rebooted around that time you know the vampire diaries like all of these like sexy teen shows yeah the were, cw were all era out. yeah pretty little liars all of that and it's just like, it was a moment, like the OC, all of it, like this was all out. So you can't do that again, you know, you can't like capture that moment again. And when you try and do it in a way that is like, you know, try and fits into this current stage, it feels uncomfortable and awkward, which is what we're dealing with right now. And it's just like, we. <laughs> I-, I think we just need to have a healthier relationship with our nostalgia. Yeah. Um And what's interesting is we're also like, somehow
1: we roped in gen z into the nostalgia too like mm-hmm, the the y2k mm-hmm. nostalgia like an entire younger generation is feeling nostalgia for a time they did not live through or if they lived through it they were like two years old yeah so it is the it is the nostalgia machine which as we know is tied to money it's tied yeah. to selling this this you know vision and selling these remembrances it's a whole yeah. industry so it's a i guess we are, we are culpable yeah. in this as much as we you are. know anyone is
0: but we are and it's also like obviously studios are culpable because it's mm-hmm. like they need to churn out content but they want to do it as risk-free right. as possible which yeah. is why you lean into old ip right and, and man, then like, people and then people still watch it you know that is what yeah keeps us look at concerned. us now we're fucking talking about it <laughs> like it's it's interesting because like I would love to hear what a Gen Z thinks of this shit. I'm sure they think that it's like corny or whatever. I don't know, it's just it's just fascinating. I I definitely don't think we needed this at all. And I think it's kinda like a lesson for studios to kind of really reconsider whether or not they want to reboot something, so All right, what about you? What did you watch this week? So this week I watched The Pursuit of Love, which is on Amazon Prime. I actually didn't hear anything about this. I just clicked on it on a whim because it was presented to me on my Amazon Prime when I I went on there. And it had the cast is kind of what got me. The Pursuit of Love, if you've never heard of it, this actually came out uh, on the BBC earlier in May this year. I didn't know this before clicking on it, so I, w- I thought they just released three episodes and we were going to wait, but no, it's only three episodes. It's a miniseries. Each episode is an hour long, and it is a, t- a TV miniseries that is written and directed by actor Emily Mortimer. This is a very British production. It is an adaptation of the 1945 novel by the same name that's written by Nancy Mitford, so, for those of you that don't know, also like me, I, even though I grew up in the UK, I had never heard of this book. <laughs> Straight up. I'd never read it, didn't know anything about it. So, the novel spans basically between like the 1920s and the 1940s, and it's about these two cousins, Fanny and Linda, and their undying bond and affection for one another as they both kind of approach love and marriage. ...and how they live their lives as women... Uh, ...in kind of different ways. So where where are you on this, Jenny? I, I finished it. I watched all, all three episodes. Lovely. Great. Um, So the novel and the show itself... ...it's kind of narrated by Fanny... ...who's the cousin. And she's played by Emily Beecham. And Linda is uh, played by Lily James. Uh, so part of the reason why I clicked on this... ...is because I'm a simple bitch... ...and if you give me a cast... I'll probably watch it. So the uh, other notable actors in this, Emily Mortimer herself plays Fanny's mother. Dominic West plays uh, Linda's father, Uncle Matthew. And here's the one that I really cared about. Andrew Scott, my king, <laughs> two first names. is uh, He plays Lord Merlin, who's kind of like the bombastic society man. And um, they didn't really have this on the on the uh, marketing material, like promotional stuff, but all of the Call My Agent fans will recognize Asad Bouab. And he plays one of Linda's love interests. So, like he pops up at the end of episode two. So I really didn't know what to expect with this because again, like I didn't know what it was about. I didn't realize it was based on a book. But it kind of grabbed me pretty quickly. I don't know. I was really charmed by this, and I really loved that it was just three episodes, and then I was kind of done with it. It was basically like a film, like a three-hour film, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. What What did you think of it?
1: I. <sighs> hmm.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: Well, I guess I have to attach like several caveats to this, which is like, it takes a lot to get me to really enjoy period pieces set in, mm. you know, this kind of specific UK era. And for this one, this period series, mini series, I think it did not really do it for me that much. That's fair. I think part of it was, um, some of the performances and I think Part of it was the sort of investment and in the characters. But by the end, I will say like I appreciated what they tried to draw out in terms of like the themes and um you know what they're trying to say about the different paths that a woman can take in this mm-hmm. kind of time period and uh social context. And I appreciated kind of like the larger question or, or message surrounding that, but it was yeah. some of the particularities of like how we got there from the beginning from like over the 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 series of like decades uh that I didn't enjoy so much like the the destination was fine but the journey a lot of it didn't capture me i think as much as as it could have
0: yeah that's that's absolutely fair so to give a little bit of context fanny who is the narrator she is She's kind of like the quiet, sensible, educated one that likes to read books, and Linda is like the joy de vivre, like total romantic escapist. And you know, a lot of that has to do with her upbringing because she's kind of like <laughs> she, she's basically imprisoned in her big yeah, old castle very, in the yeah, house, sheltered, like very sheltered. literally. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and she kind of sees marriage and love as like the escape and the only mm-hmm. way out. And um, she's also, you know, it's communicated to us that she's a girl of extremes. She's either crying or she's laughing like there's no in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they love each other dearly, d- despite their differences in, in personalities. But the thing that I liked the most was how you kind of see this diametric opposition of Fanny and Linda as, as like women, as like they're kind of two sides of every woman. There's one that wants to kind of break free and run wild and do whatever she wants and not think about it and hope for the best. And then there's also the one that is like someone that just like wants to be sensible and stay put and not risk getting hurt and not risk heartbreak or wasted time or whatever that might be. And my only critique of this is even though Fanny is the narrator of this, there's a lot of focus on Linda. And I get it, but I really, because, you know, she has like, the more interesting life. But I think the strongest part of this was the times where you saw Fanny feel resentful. Yes, I 100%
1: agree with that. I was just going to say, yeah. like, Fanny is a much more interesting character to me because you see, like you were mentioning, there's that, you know, aspect of, of womanhood or like just like personhood that wants to break free and be liberated yeah. and do whatever. And Linda embodies that. But actually, Fanny also feels that a lot. It's mm-hmm. just that she represses it deep down and she does not yeah. really act on it so much. Yeah. Um, and, and she is like quite bitter in a way. She's like very definitely. bitter towards, towards Linda. And uh, I, I found that very human. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Linda was a little bit more of a. I don't know. I'm like I don't a stereotype
0: you... of herself, right? Yeah, like I don't yeah. know
1: if you could categorize that as like manic pixie dream girl from like Bridgerton era. But... I mean,
0: basically, yeah. 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 Definitely. And like, you know, Lily James perfect for this role, like straight up. She's so she's always been like that type of wide-eyed mouth agape like teary-eyed, overly oh emotional God. type. So like it, this it is was It was too much for me in this. It's a lizard. lot, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I feel no offense to Lily James at all. I think she's a great actress. I just like I don't personally warm up to her. So I think that had something to do with it. And like, I really like Beecham. Like Emily, I think she's fantastic. But I really liked how it kind of captured, you know, this is set in the 20s through to the 40s. It's a very like odd moment in history, Mm -hmm. like British history, European history, whatever it might be. So to kind of see these girls go through this very evergreen I mean some would call it frivolity of like female existence right of like Mm -hmm. what is love what is romance how do I find it how do I live my fullest life in the middle of like like the tail end of the first world war going into the second world war yeah the rise of fascism like a war being drafted into war just like untold terrors and horrors yeah and you know the the way that the culture is I guess like for a bunch of like privileged girls in in the countryside of the uk or whatever i just really felt like i was there and it mm-hmm. also made it feel very current like i think my part of the allure of period pieces is that it kind of feels like another world another time that you get to peek into right mm-hmm. and there's Escapism, like a fantasy yeah. of it and there, it's not to say that there's no fantasy in this i think like stylistically it's definitely fantastical but i really loved how it also made it feel like these characters could exist now. And for that reason, it made it feel a little bit less like they were aliens from another time, which is like what I think a lot of period pieces do. And it made them feel like a little bit more like, oh yeah, we've been like, as women, we've been going through these issues for time. And also like, this is the version of the gossip girl. Well, you know, like what does it, what does it mean to be like a privileged person in this point in time? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, I, I think it really captured that quite well. And I think so, given all of that, I think part of the reason why I found it fascinating, especially afterwards, was this was based on Nancy Mitford, like the, the writer of the novel, like, basically on her own family. She grew up with six sisters, they were called the Six, like the Mitford Six. Yeah, it's just, it, it's nuts how how fascinating these women were like just in terms of you know half of them ended up being fascists. one of them ended up being a communist like nancy herself was a socialist she and nancy is actually i think she fanny is based on her mm-hmm. like she's based this character on herself what's interesting about the real nancy method is that she you know became a socialist and then moved to paris and then had an affair and i kind of wish that we saw fanny have a fucking affair man and, that, and I know that it's only three hours and there's only so much you can do. How did you feel about the style of this?
1: Well, part of it was like very what you would ex- exactly what you'd expect from a period piece, like a lot of the like just a, this huge manor in the countryside, like a like costume and everything. But yeah, there, as you said, there's kind of a more fantastical element, like when they introduce Lord Merlin, Andrew Scott's character, mm. and all of the what is it, bright young things that he yeah. embodies. And then there was also the music, which was interesting, in that they used a lot of contemporary songs, or at least songs from the past couple yeah. of decades, which yeah. obviously is like not from that time period at all. I thought it was an interesting sto- choice stylistically. I think probably to try to bring it a little bit more into the contemporary period in terms of like what it's evoking and how it relates to
0: contemporary viewers. Yeah, um, and the contemporary I, woman, and yeah. like yeah, yeah, a lot of period pieces now are doing that. Where they are picking, like, I think Dickinson is one example of that. Oh, yes. Um, and then also, you know, using Marie Antoinette, of course, like the first to do it, basically. Mm -hmm. And like some Wes Anderson movies, like the way that it looks. I think there's a lot of like inspiration from all of these. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I think like I always love, I, I hate like too much self seriousness with period pieces. Yeah. So I appreciated that it was just kind of being like... Especially the way that it's written with the dialogue. It's very... Like, the way that they talk is accurate. But what they're saying is a little bit more contemporary, which I really appreciated. Because, like, there's no way that everybody was just, like, aghast all the time. Like, I'm sure women in the 40s and 30s were having, like, frank conversations about sex. So I appreciated that. I can't complain, you know? Like, I had a fun time. And obviously one of the perks was... Andrew Scott. <laughs> so um he looks fantastic in this. He obviously performs <laughs> amazing. Totally sounds, convinced of him. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think there's there's always something very fascinating about aristocratic, rich, white people going abroad doing things you know there's a reason why i like talented mr ripley and it's not because of like all the murder or whatever it's literally because like (laughs) it's fascinating watching these like really rich people like be in italy and there's um oh i
1: love seeing that in little women too just yeah uh, amy going going abroad having having the time of her life and yeah so i really liked
0: how it kind of captured that
1: um i I just i I I had a fun time like yeah i agree that you can see definitely like emily mortimer Especially as, like, a, a showing for her, like, as an act- actress turned, uh I guess, like, showrunner filmmaker. Like, yeah, she's having a lot of fun. And it's – I am, like, interested to see what she does in the future. Like, Constance Grady has had some really good coverage of Pursuit of Love over at Vox. And she – and I think others have said, like, the book is – as far as, like, kind of witty or, like uh, – not as self serious, like as this series is. They're mm-hmm. like, the book is even better. It's even wittier. It's even funnier. It's even sharper um yeah so i now it kind of makes me want to pick with a book i think
0: i do want to read the book just because i'm so fascinated by these girls like these metford girls like what like just i'm obsessed with just like messy uppercross bitches in general but especially when they're like like half a family's nazis and half is yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, like one of them ended up being so it's interesting that linda is the encapsulation of like all of this all of nancy's sisters where Nancy's sister Diane ended up uh, being the mistress and I think ended up marrying, mostly, who was basically like the Nazi leader of the UK that never ended up becoming the Nazi leader of the UK. I think Adolf Hitler showed up at their wedding or something like batshit like that. And then like their other sister ended up, you know, following going down that fascist path as well. And then this other sister ended up go- by being a communist and going to fight for the Spanish Civil War, which you'll see Linda doing. It's just fascinating. Like what? And then... I think nancy moving to paris is also like the third episode of what what linda ends up ends up doing so yeah, she's I, just I, linda is like the encapsulation of all of these women and it's just that's fast faci- i do want to read more and of course of course it's wittier because you know you've got more room to to talk as the narrator so mm-hmm. yeah if you want something short and sweet and you want to be in like 1930s uk with a bunch of rich girls uh, i highly recommend this Uh, this week for Culture Notes,
1: we are talking about a certain A-lister suing a certain megabillion-dollar entertainment conglomerate. Um, So, of course, that would be ScarJo versus Disney. ScarJo, you know, on the heels of Black Widow, she is, like, out of Marvel franchise. She's, like, done with it, and she is taking the opportunity right now to sue Disney because... The release of Black Widow was supposed to be theatrical only, so she would have gotten a cut of the, you know, the box office. Uh, this was in her contract, she says. But it turns out that Disney, of course, they simultaneously released it in theaters and on Disney And she does not get a cut of Disney Plus, which reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, cost her about $50 million, leaving her with a $20 million paycheck instead of, you know, seventy mil, which is... a a decent difference that's a big amount Um, it's a huge amount it's a huge amount so this is kind of setting shockwaves i think because it's it's so rare that anyone goes up against disney and the fact that it is you know one of the beloved stars of one of their beloved just like ip universes like the marvel cinematic universe it's kind of yeah blowing apart first of all like blowing apart this like dream or fantasy that i think a lot of fans have of this like beautiful marvel family um in love with each other in love with disney and then also like this could have huge repercussions like depending on how this lawsuit
0: goes like across hollywood definitely and i think what i love about this is that you know to all the mcu fans it's kind of communicating something that we already knew which was that like a lot of these actors are only in marvel for the money like actors would get like a, a set amount from a studio whenever they do a film, but with Marvel especially, they've opted more, not you know, not so much to get paid to a appear in thing. the, yeah, yeah, like a flat rate to appear in the film, but they get a cut of the box office tickets because they yeah. know how high it is and you'll notice any actor that is like thinking about their career and its longevity is they do want a cut of the marvel pie because that just allows them to be financially stable so they can fuck off and do their independent stuff if they want to do it yeah um so like you'll notice every actor will just be like doing a whole bunch of independent stuff and then they've got their marvel gig and this is this is really just black and white showing you that that's basically, they're not doing it because they think these stories are like, <laughs> like, there's like for, fascination or for the art or like for the, for the canon. They're not, they don't give a fuck, man. They just, they're just in it for the money, which is why it's this is a big great. Deal. Yeah. Well, yeah. they lose out on the money <laughs> because it, because it's like, so I'm doing it for the money and then, so I'm losing out on the money. So why the fuck am I doing it? Right. So I love this because it's just mask off, you know, <laughs> like, yeah.
1: And it's like, I have my own, you know, personal, like, ambivalence about Scarlett Johansson, like, tied to especially just role she's taken previously and her response to that, but, you know, in this case, like, it's, if it's a single actor against the huge power, like, one of the largest companies, certainly one of the largest entertainment companies in the world, Disney, like, of course, like, you gotta, however reluctantly side with ScarJo, especially because yeah. she actually has a bit of a, like, advantageous position to do this, versus... Mm-hmm. All of the, the smaller actors, the writers, the, everyone who is not in the position to go against Disney like this. Yeah. Whereas she, she is like wrapped up her obligation with MCU. She has been killed off for a while. She's gotten her movie out of the way. She is done. Yeah. And then she like turns
0: around and does this. Uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta respect that. Gotta respect bit. it. Gotta respect yeah. it. Like anybody that tries to stand up against the mouse you yes. got you know more power to them um yeah. especially with regards to like this last year with hollywood and with like movie production and tv production if anything has kind of shown us that this, this whole industry is, is, is a mess of labor issues. Yes. It's like, yeah, it's like you said, the only way that anything can actually be done with this industry is if the star power says something about it, because right. no one gives a fuck about anybody behind the camera. Really? No, no. The studio doesn't, the viewers don't. <laughs> like, even though they're the ones that make the machine run on time. Yeah. Um, and run well, it, no one gives a fuck. Yeah. It'll be interesting also to see, like, from here like who
1: sort of wins the the pr battle because mm-hmm. obviously scarjo she's she's coming out on top in a lot of the the sort of media coverage the uh yeah the
0: industry the feedback. industry yeah
1: yeah um but disney is trying its hardest to sort of <laughs> bring that down like their the the statement they issued in response to this was like shockingly rude to
0: yeah to like
1: talent someone who's considered like an a-list a-lister like talent in this industry they said you know let me i'm quoting from this the lawsuit is especially sad and distressing and it's callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID 19 pandemic um and then they they mentioned her salary (laughs) they like full out stated how much she earned uh from (sighs) the movie and so like first like you know anytime you're you as a big company you you're immediately going for the pandemic to sort of paint her as this person and who doesn't care about the pandemic, that's like, you. they are going full steam ahead on just like the smear machine as much as they can.
0: Well, what they're doing is what a lot of people, like a lot of sports teams do to their greatest athlete and talent is they're leaning into the fact that people aren't very sympathetic to already rich people.
1: Yes. Like, dropping the 20 million like right in here in
0: the statement. Yeah, even though you need that very rich person that's the athlete that is very, very skilled at what they do or the actor that's skilled at what they do. To sell the thing that you're trying to hire them to do. Like, this film wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be as successful if it didn't have so many famous people in it. But the biggest problem, the biggest beef that I have with that statement is that it's coming from fucking Disney. Right. They opened up their parks in the middle of the (laughs) pandemic, like, and cruises, like, get fucked, man. Like, this is the whole thing is like, you're trying to make a point that's reaching out to, like, quote-unquote the masses because they can't empathize with the very rich person, but you are the person that hired the very rich person, which means that you're tenfold, hundredfold richer than she is. Like, what are you talking right. about? And
1: it's the thing of, like, trying to make it an individual issue rather than, like, a a larger systemic thing. Right, right, um, right. Like, yeah. they, they're they throwing one very rich lady um, out to the wolves instead of, yeah. while well, trying to, like conceal or at least like not draw attention to the fact that like oh well this is like a multi billion dollar like one of the again one of the largest companies in the world that is doing this so exactly it's i don't know how many people will like fall for this kind of spin I'm, i'm curious to see how this continues and what sort of lawsuits follow in its wake like there have been reports already that yeah um allegedly like emma stone may also be considering a loss similar lawsuit um in regards to cruella and yeah it's gonna be interesting to see who in hollywood like follows up with this who like publicly supports scarjo who says who who says nothing and i'm betting a lot of people will say nothing because they are also getting their paycheck from the mouse. So,
0: well, yeah. I mean, it, what's fascinating is that, like, I think middle America will probably agree with Disney because if anything, if there's anything more American, it's that they will trust a corporation more than they yeah. trust a woman, period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I think that's going to go that way. But in terms of the industry, like Kevin Feige, who is like the connect, right? With all these actors and the reason why, like, he's, he's the biggest name behind a lot of the TV in the film with, with Disney and MCU. Mm -hmm. He's already basically like kind of rejected the Disney statement and is like leaning more towards protecting the actors because I think he knows that if like he's the reason why they even want to do it for the most part. He has a great relationship with them, So he's covering Mm -hmm. his own ass already on the actor side, which Mm -hmm. he has to. And I think like within the industry, yeah, like people hate actors because they're divas and they won't come out the trailer and, and you can't sell a film without them. But they are the reason why people go to the movies. Like, Star Power is still the reason why you will sell out at a box office. I have heard that legally, it's- Scar Jo's case is kind of weak. She probably won't win oh, it. Oh, really? Mm. But, again, I think symbolically it's super important. Because already, it- it's mask off. Like, it's like, we're here for the money. You're not giving me the money. Yeah. Renegotiate negotiate the contract or fuck off. Right. Which I think is like, they will probably start thinking about that especially because like as we know pandemics are just going to get all the more uh common in in the next 50 years like we're probably going to have a pandemic yeah. a year so yeah
1: and the streaming is going to continue consolidate like more of this is going to happen like if if anyone had to do this file a lawsuit against disney like it is someone at least who has the, the time and the money to do this at the moment totally. uh, versus all the totally. people who don't so yeah, yeah. interesting scarjo we will keep an eye on this and uh, power to our (laughs) agency yes
0: exactly (laughs) Um, yeah good luck babes (laughs) all right so that's it for us this week if you are watching anything that you think we should check out please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just add us or DM us at CriticismIsDead on Twitter and Instagram. There is so much TV that's going to be coming out in August, but if there is anything that you're watching that we've totally skipped out on, please do let us know. For um, extended show notes, including links to everything that we've talked about, and then some, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Maybe tell a friend about us. And we will see you next week. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny G. Jung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.